started with our class. Um, the uh, reconnecting time is more and more important as uh, we get to see folks we haven't seen in a long time. So uh, certainly don't want to shortchange that. If you're connecting, please do that. Um, please keep doing that. Um, who's close? Adam, you want to pray for? No? <laughs> Sorry, I'll have Bobby pray for you. Bobby, you mind opening us in prayer? Another beautiful day, Father, and we're grateful to you for it. For the pleasures of being in the body of Christ, we are so very, very grateful. For the sacrifice, for the love, for the understanding and the redemption. Ask your richest blessing uh, upon our friend who's going to talk to us this morning. And help him to recall those things that he's studied and prepared for his father. And we're grateful to be a part of his life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't want to train you out of sitting close, so starting next week, I'm going to start. I'm going to go to the back for people to pray. That's, the, <laughs> that's right. I'm going all the way back. So just, just know, David and Marcia, you're, you're praying next week. You're <laughs> no, it's wonderful to be with you. Um, we are going to get to the, uh, the next chapter of what um, we're doing in, in the book Life Together, exploring Christian community. Um, but I... I don't want to take three full weeks on the one I was supposed to do in a week. You know, that's the way I'll do from time to time. So I'm just going to do a quick look at the end of, of the last chapter, which is um, he entitles it The Day with Others. So remember, big picture um, of, of Bonhoeffer's conversation here, the importance of community. That's the first chapter we don't take for granted. And again, one of the reasons that within three pages of rereading the book, I thought this is a perfect study for this time. We don't take for granted the visible, tangible, physical meeting together of the people of God. And he talked about that in chapter one, uh, chapter two, that with this conversation here quickly we'll wrap up. He calls it the day with others. What does it look like to structure the rhythm of our lives together? Uh, and, and he talked about opening the day with prayer, giving even the first, the first sentence or the first word we give of ourselves to God, letting God speak to us in scripture um, uh, communion time, all of that. Um, but a couple closing thoughts I'll point out in that chapter I thought was incredibly significant was how you end the day. It was a suggested rhythm that he gave for ending the day, and again, he's not making this up. Um, he talks about at the end of the day, it's one of the traditional hours of prayer, the rhythm of prayer to before you go to bed. It doesn't have to be some long thing, but but. So the opening word goes to God, perhaps the closing word goes to God as well. And again, just a reminder, uh, this is something we've talked about in the past when we looked at different spiritual practices, but one of the longest standing traditions of spiritual uh, disciplines or spiritual exercises. And, and um, I didn't realize this until you know a decade or so ago when I began studying some of this, uh, because somehow that got lost in a lot of Protestant Christianity. You know, sometimes with Protestantism, we threw the baby out with the bathwater and some things that, that had grown over tradition. Some things needed to be get, uh, done away with. Some things we needed to probably not throw away and reclaim. But one of them is called fixed hour prayer or the divine office or the daily office. The word office in, in, uh, in the ancient uh, Latin just meant work. So the daily work of the people of God is prayer. And so throughout scripture and Christian and, and pre-Christian history, one of the regular practices is to punctuate the rhythm of the day with prayer. And again, this doesn't have to be long extended things. For some places in monasteries it is. Um, but it can be as simple, a friend of mine that's a, a priest of the Anglican church said, it could be as simple as praying the Lord's Prayer and just 
speaking to him just for a moment. But the, the longest tradition is, um, or, or what has become the settled tradition, is morning, noontime, midday, evening, and then before you go to bed. And there are fancy words for it. You don't have to worry about any of those. But let me give you some examples from Scripture of how far this goes back. Psalm 119, verse 164. In the Jew Jewish tradition, it wasn't four daily offices, it was seven. And so it says, and I quote, seven times a day I praise you, the psalmist says. There's a rhythm throughout the day. You can see that in the, uh, in the Middle East even today. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, uh, for any of us in here who are not Jewish uh, biological, uh, by biological descent can appreciate the fact that uh, Peter was part of the daily office. It says, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching city, the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. It's the noon hour prayer. That was what he did. So he would go up and pray, and that was when God gave him a vision that ended up being the extension of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. So we're all grateful for the fact that he went out and prayed on the roof at noon. Um, another, the second biggest evangelistic experience in the book of Acts. I'm just giving you a few examples here. Uh, the first one is obviously Pentecost, 5,000 people, and then there's 3,000 people that came to Christ. It started this way, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. That was that uh, later evening, um, uh, later afternoon, early evening office. So that's just what they did. They rhythmed their life. They uh, punctuated their life by coming to God at these moments, morning, noon, evening, and uh, before night. So, uh, so again, I commend that to you, as Bonhoeffer did, as a, as a way to think about uh, just a simple practice just to acknowledge God even in the middle of a busy day if it's just a quick Lord's Prayer or just God I, I see you I know you would you please be part of the rhythm of my day uh, but the part I thought was especially significant is a couple of things that he suggests before going to bed um, and we've heard kind of like quotes about this or proverbs about this but let me let me say this in verse verse <laughs> I'm sorry it's not the Bible on page 74 at least my edition one of the things he said, and let's take this in, he said, before we go to bed, we forgive. Before we go to bed, we release forgiveness. The word forgiveness just means release. We release holding that grudge. And if you're like me, if something's really hard, you might have to release it the next day too, right? Forgiveness is not automatic. doesn't mean there are no consequences. But he said, before we go to bed, we forgive. Let me read this powerful quote. It is a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship. That every dissension that the day has brought must be healed in the evening. I just want to take that in for a moment because, again, part of what I appreciate about reading Christian classics is it reminds me of things that might have been lost over the time. He said, this has been the rule throughout Christian life. It is perilous for the Christian to lie down to sleep with an unreconciled Therefore, it is well that there be a special place for the prayer of brotherly forgiveness, brotherly and sisterly forgiveness, in every evening's devotion, that reconciliation be made and fellowship established anew. Again, if all we do is pray the Lord's Prayer, we will do it. Right? What does it say in the Lord's Prayer? Do we take this line seriously? Again, not in some legalistic, guilt-trippy rule, but as the direction of our heart. Lord, forgive us our trespasses, what? Say it. As we, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Some of us are using this, this prayer app that I've, I've talked about a, a lot, the daily prayer app. 
what I love about it is, is in every, every one of the of four times of prayer, it has the Lord's Prayer. But instead of just reciting the Lord's Prayer, it has a little line that invites you to, you know, so our Father who art in heaven. So take a second to praise God for something. And that's enriched my, my praying of the Lord's Prayer recently. It'll be one line. I don't have to pray forever. If I can say, God, I'm just praising you today that you are a God of resurrection. It's just the first thing that comes up in my mind because we just talked about it, right? But then when it gets, this is so powerful, when it gets to that line we just said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It says, forgive anybody that you need to forgive right now. What a powerful practice. And again, we might have to do it again and again and again every day. But there is something that goes on in me. Bonhoeffer says, it is perilous. It destroys me to go to sleep, to have another day with an unreconciled heart. Powerful line. Second thing he suggests is, and again, this is something that, that I didn't hear talked about a whole lot, but if you go back and look at the ancient ways that people have prayed, this is a very consistent um, recognition. We pray for protection. There is something about the night. It is more than a metaphor. I've told you before, even in recent weeks in this study, that something happens for me, the night is a difficult time, I'll wake up at three in the morning and I'm scared to death. And I don't know why. And then I wake up in the morning, I'm like, what was that? I'm scared about jobs or future or family or whatever, you know what I mean? And for some reason, wake up in the morning, I'm like, what in the world? Well, the church has recognized that as a, that as a time to kind of up our, our prayer a little bit. And so again, this is Bonhoeffer's words. Finally, in all the ancient evening prayers, can we learn from the way that the people of God have prayed for a long time? In all the ancient prayers, evening prayers, we are struck by the frequency with which we encounter the prayer for preservation during the night from the evil one, from fears, and from an evil sudden death. The ancients had a persistent sense of people's helplessness while sleeping, of the kinship of sleep with death, and of the devil's cunning in making a person fall when he is defenseless. Again, I hadn't thought about that whole lot, but it's really powerful. So here's a way to think about this. We can ask God to do his work even when we're asleep. And we talked about the beginning of this chapter, the reminder that the book of Genesis flips our rhythm of the day. It was evening and morning the first day, and the, and the playfulness that, uh, that um, Eugene Peterson brought to my understanding on this one is, man, we wake up, no matter how early you wake up, God's already been working half the day. So God invites us to join him in his work. So what if when we sleep, we know God's beginning the new day? So part of it, we can step into the rhythm of God's own work and say, God, can you be working while I'm sleeping? All right. And I just want to give you a few examples, and then we'll move on to the next chapter. But I'll open it up to any thoughts that you have. These are three examples, all from the daily office, different versions of the daily office of evening prayer. If anybody wants them, I'll send them out. Maybe I'll send them out in, uh, as a summary for next week's uh, email. Be our light in the darkness, O Lord, and in your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night for the love of your only Son, our Savior Jesus. Or my favorite, this is one of my favorite prayers in the daily office. Our I love it when I hear our children read this prayer. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Again, one of the reasons I pray these prayers, and I know there are several that do this, is I don't pray like that. <laughs> but it invites me to go to a place 
uh, to pray. And then the last example from one of the daily offices. You made this day for the works of this light, for the works of the light, and this night for the refreshment of our minds and bodies. Keep us now in Christ. Grant us a peaceful evening and a night free from sin and bring us at last to eternal life. So I just commend that to you. Just You might take a look. That, that might be something you, you want to add. We're doing all of this to say there might be something the Holy Spirit grabs you and says, hey, that might be an interesting practice for us to do. Before you go to sleep, as you're going to sleep, you might, you might pray a prayer of forgiveness. You might pray, God, would you shield us and do some, something even while we're sleeping? Uh, and we trust that he does that. Any thoughts on that before we move on to the next chapter? <coughs> yeah. Steve? Well, <laughs> you are. <laughs> we got our, our Keats bookend <laughs> in the room. I went to a retreat center with some ladies, and we had talked about some pretty dark stuff before we went to bed for some reason. And when I got in bed, I... I was conflicted because I wanted to be close to God. I didn't want to stay in that dark stuff we talked about. And I laid in that bed, and I actually felt like there was an angel over top of me. And when I talked to the sisters the next day, I found out that they had prayed that the angels would come and watch over us during the night. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. And again, they're doing that because that's what they pray all the time. And some of us... Are, are beginning to experience there's a beauty and a rhythm and an expectation for these kind of things. It's a, Again, this isn't to freak us out, but part of it is just to acknowledge there, there are spiritual forces at work we don't see. Some of those are working on our side and some are not. Yeah, Keith. Yeah, yeah I was ooh, going back to the part about the forgiveness in the evening time, and that is part of a recovery program's thing is a step 10 that says, we have to examine our day, and when we wrong someone or had some ill deal with someone, that we are to come clean and to offer forgiveness and to go to that person and do the right thing. And that is not having to drink poison and continue to hurt yourself with that unforgiveness and that unrepentant heart. So it does. It only does wrong to the person who holds that unforgiveness absolutely it's not doing they're sleeping they're fine yep you know but our heart needs to be repentant yep. so powerful that again you're referring to that line um unforgiveness bitterness resentment is like drinking poison helping hoping the other person dies right and there is something true about that and and so that is so true we release someone else again just a principle again from recovery in other places that may be literal. You may go and talk to somebody. There may be someone that would be harmful for you or for someone else. So it is, it's a different kind of release. But we're doing that for us. We're doing that for my own heart because I don't want the poison of resentment, bitterness uh, to go where uh, deep inside. So thank you again for, for sharing that. So I want to commend that practice to you. Yeah, thank you. Just talk about evening uh, reminds me of a book that I've read many times, The Great Divorce. By C.S. Lewis, and in the opening pages of The Great Divorce, it says, you know, the guy kind of wakes up and finds himself in this new place, and he's not quite sure where it is. And it says, Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I'd been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain and always in the evening. Time seemed to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops had lit up, and it had not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. 
and yet just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking would never brought me to the better parts of town. However far I went on these dingy lodging houses, small tobacconist hoardings in which posters hung in rags, windowless warehouses, wood stations without drains, and bookshops that sell the shops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. And you said you, you get in evening towards the end of your day and there's light in your home and you can say your prayer and get off what you need to get off, but when you're in hell, it never gets put back to hell. Yeah, there is no light there anymore. Yeah. There's a day where it's just dark enough that you have to turn your lights on. And that's just, I read that and just think, oh man, how glad we've got that we've got. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. All right, well, the next chapter of what he talks about, so again, so think of the movement of the whole thing. We appreciate community. The day with others, there's a structure and a rhythm to our time together in community. And if you have a chapter on the day with others, you might guess what the next chapter is. It's the day alone. Uh, and here's a way to think about it. I was, I was thinking about this with uh, uh, my wife and I went on, on one of our date nights recently. And, and I, I do this all the time, especially do it at Mexican restaurants or the place where we go that has really good bread. And then recently we went and they have good little soup appetizer they brought out. I will make the mistake on a constant basis of filling up with all the appetizers, right? Does anybody else do this? So by the time the meal comes that I came there for, I don't want to eat it anymore. So we had, we had steak, and the steak comes. I did a pretty good job on the steak, but I, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it as much because I'd filled up so much on, on the other stuff. And it's a silly analogy, but, but what throughout Christian history and what Bonhoeffer will lead us into in this chapter is the idea that our souls, our inner being, our central core being is like that. We are not infinite beings in one sense in terms of, of what we fill ourselves up with. There is, there is a finite capacity of a human being to be filled up with something. And so here's the reality. If I fill my, stuff, my, my, my soul and my spirit up with things that are lesser than the one who made me, there won't be as much room for God to fill me. I'm not talking about guilt trips or going to hell. I'm saying throughout Christian history, what people have wanted to go deeper with God have told us is that there, is, there, there are some practices of making space in our inner being to then be filled up by the one who made us. Does that make sense? And part of what that has always been about is this beautiful rhythm of being together and connected in community and then being alone. Together, connected in community and being alone. The famous quote, and I always butcher it, so hang with me, let me make sure I get this right, that holds these two chapters together. Bonhoeffer says, to the one who cannot be in community, beware of being alone. And to the one who cannot be alone, beware of being in community. Does that make sense? Now, we're, what, what that tells me is we're all wired probably a little bit more on the pendulum one way or for another. I gotta be around people, Melly knows that, I mean, I'm a people person. But if, if all I do is engage my life in community, there's going to be an emptiness to my soul because I'm also wired to disconnect from all of that, to, to only know who I am before God. And there are others that are more introverted and wired for the quiet and the silence and all that. That's great. And yet we are wired for some connection in community where we are giving and receiving, where we are forgiving and all of those things. There are practices and parts of our soul we cannot grow without it. So I love, we hold these two chapters in tension. Does that make sense? 
but he mentions a couple of the practices that it takes in order to make room and space in our hearts and our lives for God. So again, as we always do, I'm going to start with scripture. So I want to take you to Habakkuk. So feel free to look at your table of contents if you have to in your Bible uh, um, or on your devices. The book of Habakkuk. Um, the book of Habakkuk is a great book where, where um, the prophet is bringing his struggles to God. He's hurting. He's wrestling uh, largely with the fact that they're um, under some judgment among the community of God. And he, uh, the book is structured with complaints that he gives to God, which I love this. We talked about this in prayer before. It's okay to lament and grieve before God. But God also will come back and give warnings to his people. And so what we're about to read is in the section, it's the fifth of a warning or woe um, in this section. So we're going to look at chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 20. And again, I'll read it. And, uh, and, and what do you notice here about how God has wired us and who God is and who he's not? Right? What do you learn about God here? It's a powerful passage He's speaking to a group of people that are struggling with images and idols. All right, so Habakkuk 2, uh, verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let me read this again. Your word image, um, pardon the pun, that comes out to you here. What grabs you here in terms of who God is, who he is not. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What do you notice about this? Anything at all that we can learn about God, what he invites us into. Our greatest idol is ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Greatest idol is ourselves. There's a constant frame. There's a big section in the book of Isaiah that says the same thing. We make stuff and it ends up looking more like us than it does like God, right? There is something about um, idolatry and images, right? By the way, can, we, we always need to say this when we read these texts about idols. If all we're thinking about are little statues that we bow down to, we're going to miss the whole point. Um, the word literally means images. For me, it helps me to bridge the gap of time to think in terms of that. Are we not living in a society that is absolutely saturated by, shaped by, and formed by images? So that the question is not good or bad that we look to images. The question is, what kind of image are we going to allow to shape us? Images that we have shaped or being shaped into the image of the one who made us, right? And that's the whole play on this, right? So images and idols, yes. We, we often craft them ourselves, and then we end up pretty much worshiping us. Thank you, Keith. Other thoughts on this? I appreciate what you said there, there about the images, and I think it's 
really, um, it's a basic, but it's hard. But if we're made in the image of someone and we're not working toward that one, the dissatisfaction is going to be overwhelming. And I think there's a possibility that in Western culture, we suffer from that a lot more than other cultures who haven't been infiltrated with so many other images yeah. to yeah. choose from. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, think, think of how we literally are almost drunk in our culture with different, different images, different, it could be a body image, right? We, we are constantly berated with images, body images of what we're supposed to look like or material images or, or even religious images, right? What are we supposed to look like? Yeah. So some of the women were doing this study on First and Second Kings and the picture that was in my head when you were reading it is we learned that the temple, the temple in Jerusalem was built lower and there were these high places that mm -hmm. the, um, you know, had been erected over time for different reasons and from other nations. But um, anyhow, my thought was that, you know, but that's where the idols is. They ended up putting golden calves in some of them. There were other things that were there. They were supposed to be the places where you could find God. Even some people would say that. But Lord is in his holy temple. So mm. he's not in these places that we erect, that we think are mm. um, places that we go to in our hearts or in we go to literally even looking for God. But he's in his holy temple and we're his holy temple. Yes. So just trying to, yeah. that picture is beautiful. Yes, yes. And when we do things like that, we almost put God in a box, don't we? Like, oh, this is the sacred place. There are non-sacred places. We can go there. Uh, up here, Keith, Josh's. Keith? Sorry. I'm telling you, Keith, Keith dropped 30 pounds on Sunday mornings because we got him running on it. But. I think it's interesting. We learn something about ourselves as people in this passage mm -hmm. because we're trying to fill the silence. We're what? We're trying to fill the silence. Yes, in these, yes. And these idols that saying, can this, this, this is a speechless idol. You've made this thing, but it can't say anything for yes. you. And you've made this thing out of stone. Can it teach? There's no breath in it. But then it, re, it reiterates the importance of the silence and says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I think it's not, I think there's value there. And yes. it's so hard for us to sit back and allow the silence to teach us because when we're in the presence of God, and we intentionally humble ourselves and silence ourselves is when he speaks through the whisper, yes. when we want to be smacked in the face, which is why we build a golden idol. Right? Yes, yes. We've got to have those things stimulate all that. This is such an incredibly important passage for us to, to slow down and get. Some of you heard me teach on this before um, because it, it blew me away one time when one of my uh, teachers and mentors uh, taught on this passage. Um, and it just kind of smacked me in the face when, when we unpacked it some. Think about this for a moment. Again, some of you heard me talk about this before. I, I, I credit Randy Harris for teaching this to me. Um, but I want you to think for a moment what idol worship sounded like. Now, this is kind of the more classic, like, what did idol worship sound like? You can just call it out, and I'll repeat it after. What did idol worship sound like? Incredibly noisy. My favorite exa example of this is the prophets of Baal showdown with Elijah. You remember this? First Kings 18, right? You remember this? So they have the battle of the gods, 
I, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. You probably heard me talk about this before. It's, it's funny and fun and, and scary how real it is. So there's a big showdown, and Elijah says, we're going to have we're going to have a contest. We're going to put a steak on the barbecue, and whoever charboils the steak wins. I mean, that's paraphrased, but that's literally what goes on. Uh, and it's always fun, by the way, because God is not afraid of, of uh, playing away games. It's home court advantage to Baal. Not making this up. Baal was the storm god. Baal's major uh, weapon was lightning, fire from heaven. So Elijah says, great, we'll stack the deck. We'll give you home court advantage, and you get the ball first. Right? I'll go look at the story. I promise it's in there. It's not quite said that way, but that's what's going on. He said, put the stake out there. Pray to your God. Whichever God answers by fire, that's God. And they're thinking, great. This is our thing. Now go read it. I want you to take it in because it is such a powerful statement of what it looks like. And it's so hard for us sometimes to say, well, we don't worship those little statues. I'm telling you, I am, I am shaped, my kids are shaped every day by images of what shoes they wear, defining their identity, what car they drive, defining their identity, especially in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm just telling you, right? So here's what it says. The worship of Baals, hundreds of them. What do they do? Does anybody remember the story? Do they quietly pray to God? They're shouting and they're dancing and all of that. And it's just great. I, I tell this every time I tell this story. Elijah gets to taunt them in the name of Jesus. It's awesome. Elijah says, oh, I'm sure he's really a God. Uh, he's probably just on a trip. And he says, I kid you not in the Hebrew. It's a little muted in your translation. But he says, he's in the bathroom. He's relieving himself. So when he's done, he flushes. He'll come out and he'll answer you. I promise it's in the Bible. It's awesome. Hebrews, it, it's great. And so he does this and taunts him, and it says, and listen, and we're laughing, but don't laugh at this painful part. It says they shouted louder and louder to the point they cut themselves. And you ready for the line? I think it's in verse 19. It said, no one listened, no one answered, no one paid attention. Every person who ever lives will worship something will be shaped by something and there will come a moment when we will cry out to the one we worship and we will need a response and this is not something you don't just conjure up worship in the moment it is something we practice our dependency on something and there will be people look at the last year who were dependent on stock markets and all sorts of other things or their workplace or their environment or their identity. And I'm speaking to myself sometimes too, right? And all of a sudden, your idol will get called out. So here's the great question of life. Will there be a response when you need your one you worship to speak? That's the whole tragedy of this text. He's saying, here's the crazy thing. You're talking to wood, and you're talking to shoes, and you're talking to cars, and you're talking to bank accounts. They can't talk back. So again, Randy Harris quote, why is idol worship always loud? Because ain't anybody else talking. Why is it that we must, in truly Christian worship, punctuate our time of worship with some silence? Are you ready for this? Because we worship the living God, and he may actually have something to say. You hear that? When your God is alive, he might want to speak. So I need to make space 
in my time of worship alone and together to allow God to speak. I've, I've told this story many, many times. I've confessed to you the first time I heard it, I grieved. It's not true in this church, but I grieved because I thought if we wove into our time of worship a punctuated time of silence, people would leave. That's what I said. I confess my own idolatry. And you know what, I, and I had a little conversation with God on this one. What I realized and had to confess to God is, I don't believe if we shut up, you're going to have anything to say. I confess that. Now, that's not true anymore, and it's certainly not true in this place. I love that woven into our worship here, at least when we're all normal, is a time to pray and a time to be quiet and a time to receive and all of that. And that's what Bonhoeffer says. Sometime we have a rhythm where we have time alone with God and we let God speak. And again, it's so powerful, that, that line that ends this. There, he's contrasting idols can't guide, idols can't speak, idols tell lies. Again, this is a short little text, but it's power-packed here. He calls, Habakkuk calls idols teachers of lies. Now, isn't it interesting? It's ironic. They're not real, and yet they instruct us. So hear this. Whatever I put... So here's a simple thing to, to de-stained glass the word. Worship is just a word that means to give ultimate worth to. Worth-ship. It's to give ultimate worth to something. Whatever I give ultimate worth to, whether or not it's even real, it's teaching me something. Do you hear that? Idols are teachers of lies. The problem is, they're going to instruct, I'm going to be shaped by it. The problem is, is it shaping me for life? Or is it shaping me for that moment on Mount Carmel when I cry out and there is no response? No answer. No one paying attention. Makes sense. Incredibly powerful. So this is why John of the Cross, ancient follower of Jesus, classic um, leader of, of contemplative, more quiet ways of coming to God. Uh, what he says, and I quote, is God's first speech, God's primary speech, is silence. The primary way we begin to connect with God is to be quiet. Why? Because God speaks. Creation happened with God speaking creation into existence. All of human prayer is a response to what God has already initiated. So what if I weave that in somehow to the rhythm of my life? Maybe it's just a few minutes of the, each day. Maybe, maybe there's a whole day called Sabbath where we slow down and make space, right, for God to do something. And then here's that line again. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Again, confession, God means it when he said that. The great irony of this text and the other one that's similar, be still and know that I'm God, is almost every time I've ever heard it done in worship, we then proceed not to do it. Right? Be still and know God, I'm God. Now let's sing about it. <laughs> let let all, all the earth be silent before God, and then let's go sing about it. I'm all about singing. You know I love that act. I'm obviously all about talking, but there's got to be a time where just give God space to speak, right? Any thoughts on that before I give some quotes from Bonhoeffer? He's got some powerful things here. He, yeah, everybody can just point. <laughs> this, may be, this may be a little bit of a stretch, but I was just thinking um, as a teacher and watching my students, especially high school students, how they're constantly connected or constantly bombarded or constantly 
around the noise. Even though you may be sitting in a room and it's silent, they're on their phones with constant stimulation. And I think about the reason why so many people now are leaving the church is because they're seeking that constant stimulation, they're seeking that noise, and they're seeking that connection with something. But what they're not realizing is in that, is they're not ever getting a chance for that something to give back to them in a genuine way. And, and I also think about a lot of these worship services that are um, the popular because they're noisy and they're loud and they're boisterous and joyful. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, but I think right. that I think I think what's happened is it's gotten to the point where that's all it is. And people just go and get that get filled with the, the spirit and the, get the emotion. But they're not taking the time to to come down from that emotion and listen to what God has to say. And I think we, we need to help our teenagers especially and our younger children learn to enjoy that silence and enjoy that quiet time and disconnect so that you're, you're able to hear what's happening around you, whether it's just in nature or just sitting in silence in your own room, disconnect it. And we need to model that. Absolutely. I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that is one of the great applications of this conversation, right? Again, use the the silly analogy at the beginning. Can we train our children? And let's be honest, not just our children. I remember Lauren would say all the time, it is the parents of our kids that are on their phones as much, if not more, than their kids are, right? So I'm just telling you what youth ministers tell me, too. Um, Can we remind or somehow train ourselves to remember these things aren't terrible, most of them, some of them can be, but most of it's not terrible. It's just, I'm filling up on bread when steak is coming, right? I'm filling up on the stuff that's just to be kind of wet your appetite for what is real. The stimulation that we surround ourselves with, there is nothing more terrifying, glorious, adventurous, incredible than the living God coming into our lives. Nothing. There is no stimulation that can compete with that. But here's the thing, God, God is a jealous God. God is not, and he's also a freedom-giving God, so he's not going to run over us. If I want to sit there and, and stimulate my brain and my mind a thousand other ways, God's not going to force himself on me, right? So, absolute, powerful uh, uh, application of this. Let me drop in a couple words from, from Bonhoeffer on this. Page 79, silence is nothing else but waiting for God's word and coming from God's word with a blessing. But everybody knows, listen to this freedom. Here's a pastor stepping in. Everybody knows that this is something that needs to be practiced and learned in these days when talkativeness prevails. Wow. That was decades ago. It's even more true. Isn't this great? This is, we don't just sit down and do it, right? We, we don't just sit down. You don't just sit down and run a marathon tomorrow. But you could start walking a mile. You can start jogging a couple we practice and learn silence. Here's one of the biggest things, I'll say this, our souls were created for this, and if we, if we only try it once or twice, we'll run away and we'll quit. It's about as good as going to the gym once. That's gonna be real helpful. You're just gonna walk away sore, right? If you keep getting the rhythm, it's gonna do something for you, right? Um, here, here's the other thing he would say. Um, with silence, this is the antidote to what you're talking about. And by the way, I'm not picking on either on, on powerful worship, but watch for it. 
again, a great line came from Eugene Peterson before he died. And he said, be careful because what you win them with is what you win them to. I'll say that again. What you win them with is what you win them to. If we draw people to church by, by an engaging hair standing up on the back of your, back of your neck service, if that's what draws us, draws people, they will leave just as fast as they came for the next coolest thing to stimulate them. If instead we, I'm all about powerful worship, but if we allow God to be the center of it, we're drawing them to God. Does that make sense, right? I think it's really, really powerful. So part of what we practice in silence, are you ready for this? All of the ancient cities, part of what we practice in silence is dropping expectations of the aha moment. You hear me? Um, I grew up hearing language called quiet time. Isn't it amazing how we totally distort even good things? If you're like me, I grew up being told I had to, need to have quiet time with God. And do you know what that meant? I had to sit down and study a book of the Bible and write a bunch of journal entries and walk away with a bunch of points to then go and live for the day. Is there a place for that? Yes. You talked about study before. That's not what this is. Silence means God cannot talk. I just sit in God's presence. Be still and know that I'm the Lord. That is actually a command. So often I just sit in the presence of God and I've got nothing to come journal when I'm done. Bonhoeffer's words on this. Let no one expect from silence anything but a direct encounter with the word of God, the presence of God, for the sake of which he or she has entered into silence. But this encounter will be given. The Christian will not lay down any conditions as to what he or she expects or hopes to get from this encounter. If they will simply accept it, the silence will be richly rewarded. I don't get to, to walk away and say, you know what? I didn't feel you there, God. But did you know God is not subject to our feeling whether or not he's present? I'm just going to be in his presence. Does that make sense? Now, there are times to feel it. There are times to let it go. Lament is part of scripture. Yeah, that's part of prayer. But there's also times to say, God, I'm going to trust that you're showing up whether or not I know it. Uh, I quote this all the time because my mentor, Phil, that you guys have met, a lot of you have met, quotes it all the time. Psalm, Psalm 145.3. If you forget everything I say, remember this. This is from him. Great is the Lord and most worthy of, his, of praise. Listen to this. His greatness no one can fathom. I cannot even begin to understand God. So we, we get that verse. So here's Phil's line, which I love. There should be some spiritual practice in my life that lets that be true. His greatness, no one can fathom. There's got to be some practice where I say, God, I'm not going to figure you out right now. I'm not going to walk away with a three-point sermon of how great God is. I'm not going to journal some takeaway. I'm just going to let you be the unfathomable God in this moment. Does that make sense? Really important thing. And throughout Christian history, silence and solitude has been a way of doing that. Just being with God's presence. Um, all right, this is my favorite quote. I'm sure I've read it before. My favorite quote in the history of Christian writing on silence and solitude. That's a big statement. Um, Henry Nouwen, his little tiny book, The Way of the Heart. And this is his encouragement, again, to not go to the gym once and walk away and say that didn't do anything for me. Invite a practice of silence and solitude. This is what he says. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. What a great image. A lot of the energy we spend in our lives, this is channeling Thomas Merton here, is building up what Merton calls the false self. 
A lot of the energy that we as human beings spend is on projecting an image. And so we're like, we're like the uh, buildings that are always under restoration. You come up and you see scaffolding around them. In silence, I get rid of my scaffolding. It's just me and God. I'm not projecting anything. I don't have to front for anybody. I don't, does that make sense? No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. I'll do that. I'm going to go quiet time with God. I'm going to read 20 books. Just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. By the way, it's not beating us down. It's just being with God. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. It doesn't mean you're not worth it. Worth, you, know you, know, you hear what he's saying? I want to run from the fact that it's just me and God. But that's not all. <laughs> this is my favorite part. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. It's awesome, but I'm telling you, if you practice silence, your mind will go crazy. It will. And this is where a lot of people, what do they say in recovery? Quit before the miracle happens. So listen to this. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. <laughs> this is me. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies <laughs> and dream lustful dreams in which I'm wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Is this guy reading our mail or what? Now listen to this. This is worth everything in the book. The task. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my quiet, until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. I'm telling you, it's amazing. But this is what all the followers of Jesus that have gone deep in their walk with God have said. Sit in it. Because the evil one will distract and he'll throw all sorts of things, but there will be a place where I continually let go and there will be some fleeting moment where it's just me and God and that's enough. And those are the places we can most experience grace because you're not doing anything for God. You're the thief on the cross. You got no sermons to preach. You got no life to live for him. It's just you and Jesus. And Jesus says, that's good enough for me today. You're with me in paradise. Isn't that cool? An invitation, this practice is something that I can't think anything else can simulate. Even reading your Bible. A lot of us can hide from me nakedness before God by pontificating and writing all the words and looking at the Greek and doing all that stuff. Does that make sense? Um, any, any final words before we wrap up? Uh, Dean, I, I had one uh, verse I wanted to apply to this uh, as I struggle in these ways of trying to find uh, my satisfaction everywhere but where it really is but Jesus makes a promise in John 6 37 he says all those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away he says in another version I, I will no wise cast out mm. so he he guarantees that promise that if we if we will lay in that solitude he, he will 
he will come, he will visit there. And it, and it may not be instantaneous every time. And again, like the gym, it, you may not see the effects of it for, for a long, long time. I'll leave with this, on, and I, I will send this out to everybody. One of the consistent ways that they've, that, that followers of Jesus for a long, long, long time have put all this together, and a lot of you probably heard this because it's become more recognized today, is a practice called sacred reading, or if you want to sound really scholarly, you can call it Lectio Divina, which is the, just the Latin word for sacred reading. Um, and, and again, I'll send this out to you, but if, you, if you're jotting this down, you can just, there's four movements in this. You start with scripture, and this is exactly what Bonhoeffer will say in the rest of his book, in meditation and all that. You start with scripture, but you get to the place where you can let it go and just be still and know that God, God is God, right? You hear that? You start with his word, you can give your own words, and then you can let it go. So here's four movements. Pick a small text of scripture, and Bonhoeffer says this. Remember earlier he said when we're doing collective reading, we read a bunch of stuff. Here, small, small chunk. Take, take this passage. And read it two or three times. Just read it. So the first movement, read. Lectio, read. Second is meditate. Now, if you're like me, forever I thought meditation is some spiritual guru thing that I don't know how to do. Two things help me. Number one, Rick Warren said, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. <laughs> I love that. All right? So I know how to repeat something in my head that isn't even true. I get to do it a thousand times. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Here's the even better thing that was liberating me. Do you know throughout Christian history, most of the time when they talk about meditating, they mean taking a word and repeating it. So a better way to say read, second movement is recite. So read the text. When we read together here, I'm trying to do this all the time when we're doing this, the teach the fish kind of thing. Let a word or a phrase grab you, just a little tiny part of it. And so the second movement in sacred reading is you read the whole thing and then you just let the Holy Spirit give you one word or one little tiny nugget and just say it. Just say it in your mind until it goes from here and seeps in. By the way, Advertiser Coke spends billions of dollars every year to do that to you. You're meditating every day because it's repeating, it's repeating, it's repeating. So what if we did that with the Word of God? And maybe you're not reading 20,000 different things or 15 chapters. You're reading one verse, one section for a week, and you're just letting it sink in. Read, recite. The third one, watch how naturally this happens. Turn it into a prayer. It doesn't have, this doesn't have to take forever. So I just take it in, you know, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the idols are liars. So God, would you teach me the truth? And then the last movement, so read, recite, pray, the last one is to sit in God's presence. I love the way my friend Phil says, and I know I'm going long, but let's go with this. He said, there comes a point where you, God, you know what God says to you? I heard you. I got it. I love you. You don't have to keep saying it. Let it go. So you just sit in God's presence. Isn't that beautiful? So yes, you can study, but a way to do quiet time is to do those four little movements. I'll send it out to you. Read, recite, turn it into a simple prayer, and then just for a few moments, sit in the presence of God, trusting that you've been heard and be around the unfathomable God. That practice has shaped the lives of people against the images that we were surrounded with for a long, long, long time. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for being the God who responds, who hears, but also the God who speaks. Father, even before I say another word, it's only going to be 20 seconds here because we're late. But I'm just, I just want to be silent before you, and let's just practice just for a second what we said. Again, we thank you, God, for being the true, real, authentic God who will speak a word to us and shapes us into your image instead of us crafting you into ours.
Thank you for the spiritual community. In the name of Jesus, we pray.